Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of What the Politics. If you are listening to this episode, um, we're doing something a bit different. There's also going to be a Zoom video recording that we have that was at the suggestion of our guest. So I'm going to go ahead and ask our guest to introduce himself for us. Hey, my name is Marshall Kozloff. I am a cooperative guest, but I'm also a podcaster. I host a show called The Alignment with my co-hosts Sagar and Jetty of Breaking Points and Risings the Hill. We publish on YouTube. We do a podcast there. I host a couple other things, but the main show we're talking about today is The Realignment. It's basically built around this idea that our country is changing in these really obvious, but also really counterintuitive ways. So we're talking about everything from business, politics, policy, tech, culture, and how it's all mixing together to create a really honestly scary, confusing moment, but hopefully one that we'll all make it through together. And so when it comes to to the goal of the Realignment podcast, what do you want your listeners to to come out of? Is it just mainly education about what's going on behind the scenes or, or what else is there to the podcast? Yeah. So that's a really good question and a good place to start. My goal for the podcast is to help people think about the world we're experiencing in ways that aren't immediately obvious, but will actually help them actually live their lives and do even their jobs a little better. So a good example of this is we always talk about debates around content moderation on Facebook Twitter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And something that happens with me is I get really frustrated because a lot of folks on the left, right, and center don't understand what any of the sides are actually arguing. So for example, you'll hear typically a conversation like this. Wow, the left, the right, Democrats and Republicans, they all have beef with tech companies. Therefore, tech companies need to be scared because regulation is coming. Well, if you actually look at what the left and the right are actually asking of tech companies, they're fundamentally in opposition to one another. So for example, if you're on the, let's say the center left of the Democratic Party, let's say Amy Klobuchar, Senator from Minnesota, your argument is that tech companies are not, I don't wanna say censorious because that has a value judgment, but content isn't moderated enough on social platforms. There is too much COVID misinformation. Mark Zuckerberg is irresponsible for how little moderation he does. If you're on the right, your argument is that actually Mark Zuckerberg is too much of a censor. There isn't enough free speech on the platform. So if you look at those two competing claims, they're actually fundamentally in opposition. And when you understand how actually contradictory both of the claims are, you understand, oh, hey, that's why we don't have a unified bipartisan consensus on regulating big tech platforms, because both sides want something different. So that's what I'm basically trying to do, helping people understand what people actually are thinking, what they're wanting, so they could come up with their own answer to that dynamic. So do you think media has played kind of like this major role in in um, creating like this divide, these two opposing narratives? And are you trying to get back to like the good old days of journalism where it's supposed to be like, think for yourself, here's what's being, here's what, here's what we can expose about what's happening behind the scenes? Yeah, it's it's interesting. And I'd love to get your take on this after this, Emily. But I, I think what's interesting for me is that it's not that I'm trying to take things back to the good old days because the good old days, A, in many ways, weren't quite so good. That's a really obvious point. But also at the same time, there's literally no going back to that. AKA we lived in a world, none of us were alive during this world. So we're talking about it hypothetically, but I think we've all read about and watched movies about a world where there were just three news stations and there was no internet and there was no ability to have the YouTube comment section. There was no ability to cheaply and straightforwardly produce a podcast like this. 
It was just in totally entirely different environment where there was much more trust in big institutions. There was much more trust in a news anchor or news anchor woman talking about how the way the world worked. And you would watch that for 30 minutes and then turn off. But the invention of 24 hour news, cable talking heads, all these things happened in the eighties and the nineties, especially when you add the internet to that, but changes all of that. So it's not to say that I'm taking us back, but what I think Sagar and I are doing is actually providing a alternate model that a certain category of person is interested in. So my target viewer is someone who is exhausted by politics, someone who isn't going to tune in to Fox or MSNBC or CNN and get another talking head telling them what to think. I think it just, there's an opportunity that you see happen when you see media go in one total, really specific direction. And I, I kind of, you know, just being able to talk to someone else who hosts a podcast, I think it's so interesting. Um, and I want to kind of get your take because, you know, me and Victoria, our whole our whole reason behind doing this is we want to, you know, give give our viewers both those sides, give them both opinions so that they can create their own opinion. And, you know, like you said, not just watch MSNBC, not just watch, watch Fox News. So, you know, what's something that, that you share with your viewers or your listeners that you think is, you know, a, a really good tip or really good advice on, on how to really navigate the political world. Yeah. So, and this goes back to the idea of the show, but I think is really resonated with people, which is that the whole point of a realignment is that things are changing. So if the whole idea of my show, and I think the whole thing that's actually happening in our country is that labels are making less and less sense. You're seeing what a Democrat is or whatever Republican is because these things are just up for grabs in many ways. Um, I think people could over-exaggerate this, but there are all sorts of cases where during the Trump era, Republicans are now saying, hey, like we're no longer the free market party of the Ronald Reagan 1980s. You're seeing Democrats say, hey, like we're actually much more comfortable with a much more upper middle class. We are the party of college educated and graduate school educated elites, we are not necessarily going to be union and working class driven the way we were before the 1990s. Once again, I'm not making a value judgment. These are just realities here. So I think the key thing that you can do as a listener, as a viewer, as anything is just understand that sources and figures who are interested in offering you convenient labels that may make things really easy and may make it feel like they're doing the work for you or actually doing something the opposite. However, I will say there is a dark side to this side of things, which is basically that because all these labels are up for grabs now, and there's actually very clearly a huge audience of people who say like, hey, I don't want to be a Democrat. I don't want to be a Republican. I want to be independent. I want to be a heterodox thinker. I want to consider new ideas. The existence of that audience has created a situation where a lot of content creators like ourselves are incentivized to basically confuse people or be dishonest. So for a good example of this is you're seeing a lot of folks who came from the mainstream media and said they were on, you know, I used to be a Democrat, but then the party changed and now... I'm right wing, but I won't say I'm right wing because I need to maintain a veneer of centrist independence. That's the media category that exists. And I'm not going to name names, but like you could very quickly with some Googling figure out the types of people I'm talking about. So I think we should be open to being independent and finding new labels while also not being taken in with people who are being, I think, dishonest about the actual level of analysis here. There needs to be a need of um, having labels in in society uh that's just that's just what i'm i'm posing 
but those labels can be used as a way to to divide and and to and to make um people scared of each other be pitted against each other um while the the philosophy of being a liberal and conservative is is something that inherently isn't good or bad right now there's like there's there is this feeling of the other when you talk about oh i'm a liberal and you're a conservative or i'm a conservative and you're a liberal whatever whatever what what is what are your comments on on this kind of um uh idea of the other and this kind of like division and and whether or not we can get back to society where these labels aren't automatically going to put a judgment on that person of whether or not they're good or bad just based off of one word yeah that's a good place to start especially like you said labels are actually important like i was saying on the debate around content moderation it's actually important that someone is able to say hey my beliefs about what tech platforms should do actually do lean ideologically to the left hey actually the way i think about this is my views do lean to the right so i should actually think about things in that sense like that's another good way of saying why my whole critique of the like independent media political spaces that some too often it makes things incoherent when at their best labels could help us make things coherent what i would probably say the solution here is is to have a large degree of humility and that seems really obvious but it's not inherently the incentives so from my perspective when i started the podcast of Sagar around two years ago we were much more policy centric so everything was this policy, that policy, this, 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 and that, do these things and everyone's lives will be better, all that part of it. But the more I've done this, we've done over 150 episodes now. The more I've done this and the more I've actually organically communicated with the audience, I've come to realize more and more. And this is separate from the critique. I'm, I'm 29 years old, so I'm not particularly old, obviously. So this is this is more than just the generic, oh, like if I was more expert, if I had more expertise and was older, I'd be wiser. That's that's obvious and true to a degree. But what I'm really talking about is the more I've realized it's very clear in this very confusing moment right now, but I do not think that anyone basically has the answer. So I think it's important to know this is how a libertarian thinks about something. This is how a, a traditional Trump voting Republican thinks about something. I you know, have my own specific belief system here, but what I am is very humble about what that belief system could help me understand about things. And then I also recognize that there's never gonna be a point in time in our country where my belief system is going to win. And what a really successful system of politics would look like probably after this decade's over, because this decade's going to be crazy for a variety of reasons, is a system where we say, hey, how do we actually come up with a model of governance or a set of policies or a type of political leadership that says, hey, how can we get 70% of the country behind this, 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 and that project? Like, What are the right things to identify and focus on? I found myself much more interested in what does it look like to be a strong leader who could pull the country together? Because the last thing I'll add to this is basically that if you look at the quote unquote great presidents that we've had, so if you look at the the FDRs and the uh, Abraham Lincolns and the uh, LBJs, and, and and obviously LBJ has his issues, but I mean, I mean, big, expansive, ambitious presidencies. None of these people were policy people. None of these people were. Here's my forty point 
specific plan. Here's my position on Medicare for all or the public option. That was that was that was never their deal. Obviously, FDR had the kitchen cabinet during the New Deal, but that was very much not who he was as a politician. He brought in policy people, almost a separate issue there. So I want a system where we're actually creating politicians and leaders who understand that leadership aspect, which I don't think we've really selected for right now. And do you think that's just a matter of kind of, you know, everyone always kind of makes that statement, you know, it's just a matter of, of older generations kind of moving on out of that, out of that life, out of those positions and, and elected official positions. So do you think it's kind of a matter of just waiting for the other generations to rise up into those positions or, you know, is there more to this? Is there, is there such a still ingrained, uh, ideology of what these these political parties are even in these younger generations yeah another great question it's it's complicated because i don't think it's purely a matter of let's wait and see new generations rise because frankly i've been incredibly underwhelmed by millennial politicians i think that millennial politicians have been good at the social media and audience building level but i think when it comes to the actual wielding of power the implementing of agendas the wait but what's your actual theory of getting what you want done like once again i'm not making a value judgment on anyone's policies i'm talking purely on a leadership perspective i think the current crop of millennial politicians are incredibly disappointing and i don't very much expect anything from them so therefore that's not the age thing you know, that, that, that's, that's just not it. I don't think electing more Madison Cawthorns on any level is going to lead to a higher level of political accomplishment and national unity. So instead, what I'm more interested in is how does it actually look like to change the actual chessboard, if I want to go with this sort of tortured metaphor. Think of, think of politicians as chess pieces. Um, they have individual abilities. They can do this thing. They can do that thing. Too often, I think we're all focused on the individual chess pieces and not enough on the actual game and the actual board itself. So from my perspective, the thing that's really exciting is what would it look like? And this is why it's important that I'm doing podcasting, that you're doing podcasting. What does it actually look like to build an ecosystem that's going to change the incentives of the game? What is it going to look like to build an ecosystem that says, actually, you chess piece, you're always going to be a rook. That's what you're always going to do. That's fine. So let's change the actual rules of the game so that you behave differently. That's what's important. If you build an ecosystem that actually says, hey, Madison Cawthorn, no one cares that you rate really highly on Fox News. What really matters is that there's actually growing numbers of young voters who are independent-minded and aren't interested in the type of, let's say, baby boomer or silent generation type talking in 1990s content. If you create incentives for that to be a win, you will just entirely see the dynamic change. So that's what we're really trying to focus on, trying to focus on creating and demonstrating this real interest in a space that doesn't exist that way. So trying to understand um, kind of like the idea behind like power players and then also what what a true stakeholder would look like. Do you have from from the episodes, the people that you've talked to from everything that you've you've done within your own career, what how would one identify like a citizen identify someone who is interested in actually making an investment in their community and trying to change implement change or 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 become a great leader versus someone who simply just wants power a title the way i would think about it is 
when I'm judging, we've, we've had a decent number of politicians on the show at this point. When I'm judging a politician, the judgment I make is less, do I like X, Y, or Z policy stand they're taking? And what I'm more interested in is what is their theory of the case? For example, we live in a hyperpolarized country right now. There are all these really big problems. And if you talk to anyone, I'm sure you all, when you're doing these episodes, you're going to get something like this from people. No one quite knows the way out. No one, whether they're a Democrat or Republican or a centrist or libertarian, no one knows how we get out of our current moment. And obviously things have been way worse than today. I'm not doing the pure doom thing. This civil rights era, civil war, Great Depression, far worse. So like, I'm not claiming like it's just a doom thing, but I more just mean people look at how depressing the political system is and they don't see a way out. So what I'm looking for is who is a politician who actually has a theory of a way out that is something smarter than well, eventually we're just going to eviscerate and defeat our opponents and then pass our policy plank and everything will be hunky-dory. That is the bad theory of the case that has obviously been disproven. Therefore, that's the first point. So do they have a theory? And then two, what is more important right now isn't their specific stance on policy and it's more just, can you comprehend what's going on in the country? Like, do you have a sense of what this country is, what it's becoming, and are you asking the questions that really help you come with that? Um, this is gonna be a semi-obscure reference, but I came across this last year. Um, the, the leader of France after, one of France's leaders after World War II was a general named Charles de Gaulle. And he has this quote where he says, I have a certain idea of France. That was, that was a famous quote that he made. And what I love about this quote and why I think it has a lot of meaning to people is that that was a leader who had a specific vision and idea of what his country was. And I get the sense that beyond just a catching narrative on a social media clip or a Fox MSNBC um, news appearance, I don't get the sense that a lot of our politicians today actually have an accurate idea of what this country is. Because an idea of a country is different than necessarily what you want it to be. It's not going to all be convenient for you. Uh, and it, it has to be able to encapsulate both the positive and the negative. And that's what I think people are really looking for. Emily, you're muted. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, I kind of want to ask, you know, as we're talking about these extremists and the, and the polarization of, of our, our country and our political sphere, you know, is there truly any neutral party in any of this? Is there really any character or role within this political system that you can say that is a, a neutral unbiased source that I could follow or, or does that really not exist in the, in the day and age that we're in right now? Yeah, the, there isn't, there isn't a truly unbiased source and that's okay. That's not, that's not the problem. They're never, and this is the, going back to the earlier conversation about going back to old former media, there never was unbiased sources. There always was, there always has been bias. The problem we have right now is that we're aware of bias. But we haven't quite come up with a mental framework for actually moving past that. So this goes once again to the, my point about political leadership. My argument here is that Great leaders, FDR, Lincoln, LBJ, they had a bias. They had a perspective. What they were good at doing was still building and forming a coalition 
of different groups of people in a mutually beneficial way. So we could say, Marshall, you have your own policy views. You have your own vision for what you want the country to look like. That's fine. Don't claim you're neutral. That'd be dishonest. But instead, have the ability to say, I also understand this other group of people who have their own perspectives. And here's why it makes sense for them to work with me because I may be like more center and maybe more to the right or to the left, but here's a way of articulating what we're all trying to achieve in a way that moves forward. That's the real point here. We haven't found a way to incentivize people to move on to the next step of it. When it comes to, um, uh, besides like the internal players within what's going on with policy and government, um, big tech, I know is a, is a big, um, I don't want to say like ghost, but it it has this like impending sort of surveillance 1984 George Orwell narrative around surrounding it right now. Um, in terms of free speech and, and how these big tech companies can are are based in in countries around the world, but, but most of them are are um, are headquartered, you know, here in the United States. How does that play a role in in free speech and what it could mean for for different countries in our own country? This is a tough one because this is one of those areas where I I don't quite specifically have my own actual perspective on this. I have like a, I have like a tactical perspective, which is that, like I said earlier, when it comes to free speech. Democrats, let's say people, you know, liberals to the left, and then conservatives to Republicans, libertarians have entirely bifurcated views on the issue. They have an entirely different perspective on this, and they really just are irreconcilable, at least as people talk about it today. So what I want to do and what I think is so important right now is we actually establish that fact is true. Nothing is more frustrating when I interact with viewers and listeners, and they really just act as if everyone agrees with them on this topic. What I find to be so fascinating is that people who are center-left Democrats really think that a lot of people, a broad majority of people agree with their perspective on Facebook being too filled of misinformation. And the same thing happens on the right as well too. You'll see people who say like, oh yeah, like Facebook is just like this like censoring anti-free speech thing. So the first step, and this once again goes to the goal of the podcast is, let's just help people sort themselves into what position they are. So I have no beef with you if you say, look, you know what, honestly, I think that free speech is important, but let's be real here. Facebook is not a government. Uh, Facebook is not the public square let's get real, like 99.9% .9 of people on Facebook are never truly censored. So when we really can find these bad actors who are promoting disinformation, I think it's more important to preference that part there. That's fine. I also understand someone on the right who says, look, the left talks about structural bias. Well, there's structural bias in Facebook. Most people who run content moderation are center-left Democrats. Most people who run Facebook are center-left Democrats. It's not crazy to understand that most of these incidents of social media censorship tend to happen on one side of the aisle and not the other, and I have a huge problem with that. So sorting those two there together is very important. 
And for me, it's not, I'm not quite sure where we go from there because I really do think these are irreconcilable positions. So it does just require that people take the first step of understanding where they stand because it's very clear that politicians and actors on both sides just don't get that. I think that's all the questions I had for, for you uh, today, Victoria, if you had any more for our guest. I was going to ask um, in terms of, of uh, looking forward in terms of, um, and this will be my last question, but a lot of, of younger the way that people define political participation differs across many generations. A lot of people in our generation, uh, Emily and I are 23, 20, yeah, 23, 24, um, believe that pol political participation looks more in terms of like activism. And people in, in older generations, like my dad's generation, who is, um, he's not gonna give away his age, but he's like in the baby boomer generation, um, they see political participation as kind of like, I'm gonna I'm gonna go in and vote, and not that not that our participation or not that our um, generation doesn't see voting as a form of political participation, but there seems to be more um, emphasis on activism besides anything else. Is 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 that an ideal way to to try to influence change in our society and government, or what are some other kind of ways in this realignment that would be um, a way to participate in the outcome of, of the political system unless activism is something that you think it, is, it, it already is. I like the way you set it up because I think you speak, you just spoke to the way certain people in both generations think about things. So I think too many people in older generations see voting and participation, quote unquote, as the thing and I think too many people who are Gen Z, late stage millennials see activism as the thing. When at the end of the day, both of these, both methods are just methods of wielding power. They're tools. They, they don't actually have any real moral weight to them. Obviously, civic participation is important. So civic participation is huge, but activism, voting, the ballot box, like these, are, these are tools that you use to achieve your goals. And my biggest problem with the Gen Z activism point is that oftentimes, especially given the fact that a lot of activists tend to come from a very specific part of society. So we're talking people who often come to their activism through campus participation, campuses that are obviously to the left of center where activism as a tool is encouraged and there's just a dynamic around that they often don't understand that activism in of itself is not going to apply to many of the problems that they're trying to solve. So think about it this way. Look at an issue, gun rights, gun control, pick whatever word you want to describe it. There is no amount of quote unquote activism that there's no amount of, there's no amount of activism that a David Hogg, um, you know, of, uh, you know, uh, I'm, shoot, I'm forgetting the school. Um, David, yeah, you know, Parkland? David, David, yeah, is that yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. yes, thank you. There is no amount of activism that David Hogg can do to convince red state voters to agree with his gun control agenda. David Hogg goes to Harvard, David Hogg goes on MSNBC, he creates or tried to create a competitor to the My Pillow guy. 
that is just not a method of political change or wielding power that's going to actually help you accomplish your goal. So my point is, I have a problem of people thinking of the activism as the thing, when in many of the cases, it just doesn't matter. Like there's no amount of activism that is going to make, in this specific moment, red state voters jazzed about the Green New Deal. That's just the reality. Um, but in the same way, the political system is less sexy, it's less fun. But I think actually having to wrangle votes and actually having to get voters to turn out forces you to be realistic about power and act by actually accomplishing things in a way that's really constructive. So from my perspective, if you were to say, but Marshall, I do support the Green New Deal. I do want, I do want to have um, you know, gun control in a way that makes our schools safer. What I should say is, well, then you need to participate in the actual political process through maybe you should primary Democrats who like AOC, for example, represent like left-leaning districts who aren't that aggressive about the issue. And maybe it's about doing this, this, or that thing, or maybe it's about finding ways to compromise, but activism and big marches isn't going to address most of the concerns that I find the activist types in the Gen Z cohort are talking about. Perfect. Well, those are all the questions that um, I have for you. And Emily, anything else to follow up? I think that was a perfect note to end on. And um, I, I just think this is this is one of the conversations that I love having the most is just being able to sit down with somebody and, and talk about, you know, the political sphere that we're in, the political climate that we're in in our country right now and, and how we can kind of, you know, look at different to, to kind of figure our way out of that. So I want to thank you so much, Marshall, for taking the time out of your day to join us today. I think this is such a great conversation and you guys can always find new episodes of What the Politics at WNCT.com under the features tab on the WNCT Podcast Network, of course, on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and wherever else you listen to your podcast. Again, this was a new kind of feature that we we're testing out today with this video. So uh, stay with us and, and you might see us again pop up on video. Uh, so thank you so much and we'll see you next week, guys.